Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Thanks, Beth. So a couple weeks ago, um, we were talking about Revelation 19, and I told you this silly little engagement story about Jennifer and I. And after the service, Jennifer said, you never told him if we got engaged or not. And then earlier today, one of you walking into the sanctuary said, hey, are you going to tell us how the story ended? Not today. You got to wait two weeks. So uh, I'll tell you in two weeks whether my wife and I got engaged or not. Let's pray. We're going to talk about Revelation 20. Dear God, uh, be present with us as we uh, read. um, It's not a confusing passage, but it's a passage that we allow ourselves to be confused by. So help us to read it as you intend. Help us to understand the deep core truth behind it and not be distracted by all the things that we're trying to make it say so that we can just hear the simple, beautiful truth about Jesus Christ. So open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds so that we can receive what you have for us and so that we can go out into the world and be bringers of hope and share this message with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So, so there are many, many disagreements about how to understand the book of Revelation. And one of the issues that we have uh, is that we have inherited not only the text, we've not only inherited the book of Revelation itself, but we've inherited 2,000 years of people reading and interpreting Revelation. And we've inherited all of their disagreements. But I am convinced that when we see Jesus in his glory, when all of this is over, y'all, Presbyterians are not going to be upset when we find out that the Baptists were right (laughs) about some things. I'm just kidding. But we're not going to be upset when we find out that our viewpoints on certain specific issues might not have been right because we're going to have Jesus. We're not going to have ideas and theologies We're going to be with the king. And we are all going to be humbled. We're all going to find that things that might have been important to us really didn't matter. And we're going to find that all that matters is that we're home. So as I told you when we first started reading this series, uh, when we first started reading and interpreting Revelation, that we are using a particular perspective. But the perspective that we're taking, it doesn't focus on any one theological tradition. It's not about a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic reading of Revelation. The perspective that we're taking just pays really close attention to the type of literature that the author of Revelation uses as he describes to us this wild experience, this vision that Jesus gives him. Now, I mentioned in my class on Wednesday night um, that music and art is often better at explaining revelation than sermons are. (laughs) Because revelation isn't a sermon. It's not just this collection of ideas. It's music. It's a painting. 
It's a movie. It's this unique piece of literature. And it has a specific purpose. To reveal to us the power and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus in a unique way, in a way that we may have not experienced before. So today what we're going to read is probably one of the most debated passages in scripture. Um, And I've come to believe that it is either one of the most confusing passages or it's the easiest to understand. It all depends on this question. Are you looking for a theological system to debate? Or are you looking for a savior to trust and obey? So ask yourself that question. Today, I believe our goal should not be to debate theology. Our goal should be to simply see Jesus and to stand amazed and in awe when we do. So we're going to read Revelation 20, 1 through 10, and we'll see what John has in store for us today. I'm going to start with these first three verses. It says this. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, I'm going to interrupt for a second. I'm going to stop and start as we read because I want us to see not only what John is doing, but I want us to see how he does it. He constructs these 10 verses in a really unique way. It's three different scenes, three different visions woven together. So notice this first in verse three, he threw him into the abyss until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now we're going to talk about the thousand years in just a little bit. That's one of the controversial parts about this passage. But the first question we have to ask, one of the sweet ladies in our Wednesday night class, Sarah Rising, if you don't know Sarah Rising, you need to, (laughs) your life will be better if you know her. Um, But she said this, we read that verse and she said this, she said, why? (laughs) Why? Why must the dragon be released? And that is exactly the question that the author wants you to ask after reading those first three verses. He doesn't want you to argue about a thousand years. He wants you to ask why. That's exactly where he wants us to start. We're supposed to be challenged and pushed by this question. Why must the dragon be released? I mean, we are almost to the end. We have two chapters left. We are promised a victorious Jesus when this is all said and done. So why must the dragon be released into the world again? So apocalyptic literature, which is the literature that Revelation is, um, it finds its roots in many ancient religions, but all from the area that's now modern day Iran and Iraq. And there's an idea common to those ancient religions that we find in really old texts. There's a beast. It's the embodiment of evil. And it's bound by chains and it's cast into the darkness. But in those religions, that beast is always set free. And this cycle starts over again. You see, they believed that history was cyclical. It was just this endless cycle. Good confronts evil, defeats evil, but then arbitrarily released evil back into the world and the circle of history continues. I don't know if you're aware, but until the writing of the Old Testament, human thought was that history is a circle. That's why we have the phrase history repeats itself. 
But many people today still believe this because in our experience, sometimes it seems like history is repeating itself. The Judeo-Christian perspective was the first time in human history that people thought of history as something other than a circle. So John writes and he says this, he says this dragon must be set free. So immediately his first century audience, they would have recognized that. That would have been familiar to them. And I'm convinced that when they heard it, they let out a deep sigh of disappointment. When they heard that the dragon must be released, is this all really just a never ending cycle? John, are you telling us that those ancient religions were right? That this chaos is just going to keep repeating itself over and over? That the suffering that we're facing, it never ends? John tells us the dragon must be released. Of course, that's what the whole world always believed. But then he said this, for a short time. And that's the turn. That's where for those first century readers, that deep sigh of disappointment, it turned into a gasp of fresh air. Wait a second. Something's different. What is he going to say next? You see, this idea that the dragon is released only for a short time, that wasn't borrowed from ancient religion. This is where the Christian story challenges all the other religions and philosophies throughout history because it proclaims the truth that the circle's broken. John is giving his readers a deep and meaningful truth. History does not repeat itself. Time is not a circle, it's a line. It has a beginning and an end, a genesis and a revelation. There is a destination and John is reassuring them that this story ends with a glorious conclusion. So yes, the dragon will be released, but keep on reading because you're gonna see why. Now I wanna read you the next part of the vision, but we're gonna do it out of order because I wanna show you how John completes this idea. So to do that, we have to jump forward to verse seven. We're gonna come back to the part in between in just a minute. So this is verse seven through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. If you want to understand that imagery deeper, go home today and read Ezekiel 38. Okay, a little homework for today. It goes on. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I hope you see verses seven through 10, it explains what happens when that beast is released for a short time. So why is he released? As one author puts it, he says it this way. He says he's released so that he can gather together all of his followers for the final judgment. His release is not arbitrary. It's not part of this endless cycle so that he can just keep on causing chaos and suffering for God's people. His release is for a purpose. And he is released to serve as a Pied Piper to once and for all call to himself all of those who stand in opposition to God all of those who side with evil over good, those who reject the free and gracious love of God. 
And once they have been gathered together, they are judged. And when that happens, that dragon is cast into the lake of burning sulfur along with the two beasts that were cast there in chapter 19 that Sabrina told you about last week. That's where he and his followers will remain. For how long? For how long? Not for a short time, but forever and ever. This story is not cyclical, it is linear. There is a beginning and an end, a genesis and a revelation. And we have just found the end of evil. So I want you to imagine that you're a Christian living at the end of the first century. History tells us that you knew somebody, that you were likely related to someone who had been killed as a martyr for their faith. You yourself lived each and every day under the thumb of Rome. You lived in the shadow of the cross of Christ, a cross that you might find yourself hanging on at any moment. So in the midst of a people going through that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution, evil apparently having its day, John is giving them this deep and abiding truth. Evil is a loser and its time is almost up and it will never be released again. Soon there will be a kingdom, one kingdom, one true king who will reign over all creation and he will do so without evil's interference or interruption. Nothing to deceive and mislead his people ever again. And this will be a kingdom without suffering, without sickness, without death. The church triumphant, those who we have lost, that we love, they're there with him now. The church militant, those of us here still on earth, we are to keep watch because the groom and all of his friends, they are on their way to receive his bride. That's where verse four through six come in. Sandwiched between this final victory over evil, this explanation about the destiny of the dragon and everybody that follows it, we hear an incredible truth about Jesus and the destiny of those who are in Christ. It's sandwiched in there as a literary device. In seminary, that was our technical term for it, a sandwich. (laughs) It's a story put in between a larger story. And its purpose is to tell us about the final victory over evil in a way that reminds us evil's destiny is not the point. It's a comfort and it's a hope. But the point is the forever reign of Jesus and our place by his side. That's the point. So listen to this. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. That's not great news, but we'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) They had not worshiped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now remember, Rome ruled the world when Revelation was written. Rome was at the time what John called Babylon. 
an example of these earthly kingdoms that come to believe that they are stronger, more powerful, they are greater than the kingdom of any God, much less the one true God. Kingdoms that believe that they can rule here on earth without the one true God as their king. We saw a couple weeks ago, every nation that replaces God as king is a Babylon. Rome was just the Babylon of the day. Now, if you are a Roman citizen, you had privileges. And one of those privileges was the way in which you were executed. (laughs) Roman citizens had the privilege of being beheaded. And it was considered a privilege because in that time, it was the simplest and easiest way to die in the ancient world. The Romans were famous for creating the most brutal, drawn out forms of death and punishment. That was their masterpiece. For a Roman citizen, beheading was quick and easy and done and it was considered a privilege. So verse four, it references those who were beheaded to make a point, not about beheadings, but about what it means to die. These people were killed because they declared their true citizenship didn't belong to Rome, it belonged to the kingdom of God. They were killed because their king was Jesus, not Caesar. They had not worshiped the beast or taken its mark. They reigned with Christ now and forever. The faithful who have found their way to the throne in heaven, they are marked by Christ, not the beast, and they reign with him. Now it tells us that they reign for a thousand years, which should bring up a really simple question. Before we get into any kind of theology, the first question should be, Why only a thousand years? I thought God's kingdom was eternal. Is this another hint or a sign that history is just going to repeat itself over and over again? No. We remember that revelation doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So we will then say, okay, then a thousand years is a symbol. Maybe it's a symbol for just like a really, really long time. But I think John is actually doing something different. I think he's pointing to a much larger idea than just a simple set number of years. You see, throughout the Revelation, John references both the Old and New Testament over and over. There's not a single idea in Revelation that hasn't already been brought up earlier in the rest of Scripture. So if we want to understand what this symbol of a thousand years means, we simply turn to Scripture. And do you know there are only two other places in the Scripture that mention a thousand years. There's one in Ecclesiastes, but that's about something with humanity, has nothing to do with God. There are only two mentions in scripture about a thousand years in reference to God, and it's these. Psalm 90, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. And then 2 Peter 3, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day, an Old and New Testament. So we have Psalm 90, 2 Peter 3, and Revelation 20, the only places in scripture that talk about this idea of reigning with Christ for a thousand years, or what some refer to as a millennium, which is the Latin word for a thousand. So what are these passages telling us about the thousand years? What are Psalm 90 and Peter saying about the thousand years? It's like a what? A day. Not that a day actually equals a thousand years, but that a thousand years should make us think of this phrase, the day of the Lord. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, 
It is one of the central themes throughout all the Old Testament and leading into the New. Because it's the day that everybody's looking for. It's the day when God redeems and restores all things. When he makes all things new. He draws people to himself. The day when he alone is their God and king. The day when the lion will lay down with the lamb. Those who have gone before us, they are enjoying that day now, in part, until the day that we are united with them and with Christ and all things are finally made new once and for all. You see, this is what Revelation 20 is really all about. It's not about complex theological systems. It's about a promise and then two very different destinations. The promise that like he said, Christ will return. That evil will be defeated and that his kingdom will be established and he will rule forever. For those who are in Christ, a friend reminded us in class on Wednesday night, there's a line in this uh, song that we're actually going to sing in a minute that describes the moment that we meet Christ face to face. It says, he shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed. On Jesus' face. When she read that in the class on Wednesday night, that class kind of turned from being a class about a book of the Bible to being a worship service. People on a Zoom meeting in tears. Because it was like at that moment, everybody felt the weight of the glory of Christ. And it was the lyrics of a song that brought that out of us. Revelation isn't a sermon, it's a song. It's a work of art. It appeals not just to our mind, but to our soul, to our gut. At some point reading Revelation, it should bring you to tears. To tears of joy as you realize that incredible moment, what it must be like to meet Jesus face to face. This moment that's already been experienced by those that we love and have lost to death. I think of my grandmother and then now my grandfather as well. My sweet grandmother who read the Bible cover to cover every year for 50 years. The moment that she finally saw Jesus face to face, the next time I see her will be after she has already seen Jesus face to face. The one that she loved her entire life is now with her forever and she is with him. She no longer needs to read the scriptures cover to cover every day, every year for 50 years because she has the word of God with her. Amen? John is writing this to give us comfort and hope, not to challenge us to see who can come up with the best complex theological system and to tell us that that incredible moment is waiting for us too. That's one destination with Christ as he reigns forever, overwhelmed and amazed as we look on his glorious face. But there's another destination, torment forever and ever in what Revelation calls a lake of burning sulfur. And we are told clearly who finds themselves at each location. Whose mark have you taken? Who is your king? Who do you serve? You tell me who your master is and I'll tell you where the story ends for you. You see, we shouldn't get so caught up in trying to decode this stuff and trying to decode a thousand years or stressing about the timing of the binding and the release of a dragon. We shouldn't get so caught up that we miss the power of the moments 
that this passage is describing, that we miss the stakes of finding ourselves in one of those two locations. The promise that Christ is coming and that your eternal destination matters. And John is saying all throughout Revelation, you need to take that more seriously than anything else in this life. The moment when you will meet Christ face to face, Christ will return just as he promised and he will defeat and imprison evil. He will establish his eternal kingdom once and for all. That's what Revelation 20, 1 through 10 is all about. All right, so what? It's actually really simple. That we are here and now to live by the truth that Jesus is already king. That his throne was a cross, his crown was made of thorns, and his victory was won when he walked out of that tomb. And look, sometimes we look around and we wonder, is he really in control? Is he even paying attention? And John writes Revelation to assure us that things are not always that as they seem, that while we wait for him to return, he is already reigning as king. And those who have ears to hear, have eyes to see, the people of faith, we know that to be true. We can look out on a world of chaos, a world that's falling apart, and we can know that that is not the end of the story because Jesus is in control. What matters is that Jesus is king and that we are his people, now and forever. Not just after we die, we are his now, citizens of his kingdom, the one who was and is and is to come. He's not to one day become king. He is king. And we are not to one day become his people after we die. In Christ, we are his people now. And even before we take our final breath here, there's work to be done. As a people of faith, we are to remember that we don't exist for our own sake. We exist for the glory of God. And we exist for the sake of others. We exist for the sake of a lost and broken world. In Christ, we are now mediators between God and that lost and broken world. Here, we believe that we are gathered so that we can become inwardly strong, so that we can be sent, always remembering to be outwardly focused because we are representatives of the King. Y'all, we are peddlers of hope in a world that desperately needs it. I'll be honest with you, I get frustrated when I, when I read commentaries and authors write about Revelation because so often we miss the point. One author said this, he said, the important number is not a thousand. The important number is one. Because when you woke up today, you woke up one day closer to the day when Jesus will finally and completely have his way. And you get to participate in that way right now. Hallelujah. Amen. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Let's pray. We are grateful for that good news, for that promise that you're coming. 
and that your kingdom will be established and it will last forever, that history is not a cycle. We don't have to sit around and wait for all this to happen again. You will bring it to its end. We thank you for the hope that we will find that end as citizens of your kingdom. And in the meantime, we experience a deep and real sadness for those who don't. For those who might find themselves on the other side of that story. For those who would reject your love, Father, teach us, equip us, give us the strength to be those peddlers of hope that can help people understand just how deep your love is for them. We don't have to know all the theological systems. We only have to know the love of Christ. So give us the courage and the strength to share it, to bring as many people along with us so they can enjoy that moment when they too see you face to face. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.